L Fanboy, episode 60. everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 60th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? I'm just going to go ahead and, and, and hit the ground running this week because I got some, you know, some some fun stuff I want to discuss with you, and I don't, I don't want to mince words or waste any time, so let's go ahead and dive right into Batman, shall we? Because last week on this here show, I was telling you that I was hearing that Ben Affleck is out. And amongst other DC rumors, you know, I, I told you that it looks like they're really trying to get the Superman sequel underway to try to get it into theaters for 2020. I also told you that the Flashpoint concept has indeed been scrapped according to what I'm hearing from behind the scenes sources. So, you know, of course, uh, three days later, right after I make this announcement about Affleck being gone, now there's rumors that he might stay. And I'm sure your head is spinning. Trust me, my head is spinning. And as I said on my appearance on episode 113 of the Shanleyan on Batman podcast, I hope I'm saying his name right. I always just say Shanleyan. Maybe it's Shanleyan or Shanleyan. Although if it's Shanleyan, Shanleyan, then you can kind of be like Shanleyan on Batman. And I kind of like that too. But anyway, like I said on that show, uh, which went up yesterday, and I totally recommend you guys checking that out because we had a very nice long-form chat about Batfleck. And what we've been hearing, because his sources also say that Ben is gone. But, you know, we, we had a very nice long-form conversation about Batfleck and where we'd like to see it go and how insane it's been to try to cover this story with all of its winding twists and turns. But as I said on that show, you know, with all these rumors, it, it puts me in a tough spot. Because on the one hand, I believe what I've been hearing for a long time, and I believe what I heard last week to be very accurate, I do believe that he's gone. You know, that Affleck will no longer be playing Batman. But on the other hand, I want him to stick around. I want him to play Batman. As I said in my written report, um, I guess that was this past Monday. You know, it, I think he was phenomenal in BVS. I've always said that he was one of my favorite parts, if not my actual favorite part of BVS. And a motivated and excited Ben Affleck is a true gift you know, the, the when the, the the Batman that we saw with, with Ben locked in and dedicated and passionate about what he was doing was arguably the best live-action Batman I've ever seen. And I, I made a little remark in my written report about, like, you know, I, I would saw off my own left pinky toe for him to stick around. So a part of me is like, I hope he does stick around because, you know, if he's sticking around, it means I didn't have to chop off my toe in order to make it happen. So, you know, it, it, it puts me in a weird spot where it's like, I want him to stay, but I've also heard from people I trust that he's leaving. So, you know, I, I hope, it, it's weird. I, I'm hoping against my own rumor. I'm hoping against what other people are telling me. I would rather think that they're wrong than, you know, than Affleck is actually gone. Because I want him to stay. But while we're talking about this, you know, one of the big questions is, right, when are they going to finally make an announcement? When is Warner Brothers? When is Ben Affleck? When is Matt Reeves? When is someone going to come out and just give an official word? 
right? Because the last thing we really heard on this subject was Matt Reeves, I want to say like, I don't know, a little less than a year ago when he was asked about his Affleck, your Batman. Remember, he gave a very sort of like non-committal answer. He said yes, but it was couched and housed in this phrasing of that is the plan for now. Yes, right now, Ben is my Batman. I forget the exact quote, but it had that sort of phrasing. It was very much like he was hedging his bets. He didn't want to say, oh yeah, that's definitely what's happening. We're going to see him in this movie. He said, that's the plan right now. That is the plan as of now. So that's the last time we've really heard. And everyone's like, well, when is someone going to come out and say something to put you know, to silence these rumors, right? Although now that I think of it, he did say something right at, at like a at a con right before Justice League came out. He said something about you know how, how into the character he is or whatever. But you know that was hardly official, and it felt more like PR at the time. And of course, you know after that, Justice League came out and it landed with a thud the way it did, and then he's gone radio silent on it ever since. So with regard to an official announcement. Here's what I think you guys need to keep in mind. This movie is not close to happening. And I know that hurts to, to say, it hurts to hear. Maria, hey, if you're listening to this, I'm sure that that just made you groan. But for better or worse, Batman is not on the immediate horizon. You know, if you look towards what's already happening, right? There, It looks like for this year, the only other DC movie that's going to be filming is Wonder Woman 2. And then if, if reports are to be believed, Birds of Prey will be entering production in 2019. And that seems to be the next one, unless they're going to somehow manage to squeeze in Suicide, Suicide Squad 2, which originally was supposed to film this fall, but now no one's heard anything about it. And I hear the studio sort of shaky on moving forward with it anyway. But regardless of whether or not Suicide Squad 2 is still in play, the next movies that are entering production are Wonder Woman 2 later this month, possibly Suicide Squad this fall, which again, I doubt, then Birds of Prey, and then if they're really trying to get Superman's sequel into theaters for 2020, that would mean Superman's film is going to film after Birds of Prey. Nowhere in this is there a spot for Batman, and there doesn't seem to be any urgency around that. You know, and I know that's frustrating because, you know, as we discussed earlier this year on this here show, and as I've written about and covered extensively on Revenge of the Fans, earlier this year, Walter Hamada and Matt Reeves had to take a meeting together to finally get on the same page and figure out what Reeves is planning on doing with Batman. Because if you recall, he's had that job. He's had this gig since February of 2017. He's had the job for a long time. Remember that whole thing? Affleck welcomed him to the Batcave. And meanwhile, there's been like hardly any progress since. And in the meantime, he has signed a lucrative deal with Netflix. He's greenlit other films that he's like producing and, and developing. So clearly, Reeves has kind of been all over the place and there hasn't been a lot of momentum on Batman. And then what happened? They had the meeting earlier this year and they, they came out of that meeting with a very clear vision, as you can tell. They came out of that meeting, and from that meeting, all of a sudden now, we started hearing more about Batgirl. That's when Birds of Prey really came to the forefront. Nightwing still seems to be in some semblance of limbo, but you know, part of that meeting was to figure out Reeves' plan so that they can start you know, releasing their other Bat family-centric movies and get those you know, into their next stage of development. 
because they, they didn't want to proceed without knowing what Reeves was going to do and what this collaboration was going to be like and if their plans were all on the same page. So from that meeting, you know, there was some clarity, but you'll notice there hasn't been any other chatter about this solo Batman movie. And that's because I think they're honestly trying to let the character cool a little bit because, you know, that BVS was a polarizing film, whether or not you loved it, whether or not you hated it. There's no denying that the film was polarizing and that it had its issues. Then Justice League landed with a thud in their eyes. And Suicide Squad 2 was another one that like it did well at the box office. But think about it. Nobody talks about that movie anymore. The critics hated it. And it's seen kind of unanimously, even by the DCU's most ardent supporters. Uh, it seems to have gotten lost in the shuffle and kind of completely forgotten Suicide Squad 2. It, it, it did not age well. It is not considered a high point. So if you're Warner Brothers, you're looking at the fact that all three of his appearances as Batman so far have not been met with like widespread love and acclaim. And it didn't do a huge amount for the DC brand to have Ben Affleck in the role, which is a pity because I think he's great in the role. But with that in mind, after three consecutive Batman appearances that didn't necessarily sit well with mainstream audiences or create all of this goodwill, I think they are rightfully pumping the brakes a little bit. You know, and especially if it's true that he's gone, there's no reason to call attention to any of that up until they have a Batman movie that's actually ready to be produced. So... If we're going to look at all this, right, if we're going to kind of project where things are heading, the soonest we're seeing a Batman movie, which I don't think it's realistic anymore, but the soonest we're seeing a Batman movie is 2020. I think it's a hell of a lot more likely that we're not getting a Batman movie until 2021. So with that in mind, you know, it wouldn't go into, it wouldn't actually start filming until some point next year. And more than likely in the year 2020 is when it would start filming for a 2021 release. So when you consider that, there's no incentive, there's no priority, there's no rush for them to come out and address this situation. You know, think about it. If Birds of Prey is filming next year, we still don't even know who's playing Batgirl. We don't even know who's playing the rest of the Birds of Prey. We know nothing about this movie. And yet, according to various reports, it's going to film next year. So if we don't know anything about Birds of Prey and it's a year off, not knowing anything about Batman is totally reasonable. You know, they're not under any obligation to let us know what's going on with that until they've officially slotted it for production, until they have a release date in mind, until they have a script locked, until everything is firmly in place. There is no reason to put anyone out on a podium to make any kind of announcement about Ben Affleck because the movie's just simply not coming for a long time. And, you know... <laughs> Announcing that he's gone is kind of a negative story. It's going to lead to all kinds of questions. It's going to be controversial because it means he never got his solo movie. He's this big A-list star that the tabloids eat up. It's going to become a whole other sort of negative story. And right now, Walter Hamada and DC Entertainment, they all they want to do is put their best foot forward. They only want to talk about the future, things that are exciting, things that are going to get fans looking forward to what's to come. So that's why I would not expect any kind of formal announcement, as frustrating as that sounds, I would not expect any kind of formal announcement on Batman anytime soon. 
You know, I feel like the, the, the period between now and San Diego Comic-Con is going to be all about emphasizing all of the exciting content on the DC Universe streaming service. It's going to be to set up the hype machine and get that rolling for Aquaman, for Shazam, and for Wonder Woman 2, as well as announcing a Superman sequel. I feel like those four things, those four components, are going to be the, the priority for DC for the immediate future. Trying to shine a spotlight on the fact that their A-list star, Ben Affleck, is possibly leaving and they have to recast him... That's not going to do them any good. That's only going to create negative headlines and more questions. And, and people will then start asking more questions about that at, at Comic-Con and, you know, in that immediate time. They're going to be asking more questions about that than all the exciting projects that they're trying to promote. So I honestly don't think we're going to hear about this Batman thing anytime soon. Now watch. With my luck, I'm going to put this episode up today. And then an hour later, Variety is going to, you know, with a press release that Ben Affleck is gone or Ben Affleck is staying. Watch. So, you know, with my luck, something like that's going to happen. But in, in my mind, it, it's extremely logical. It makes a ton of sense for them to keep this sort of stuff out of the public eye for now until they actually have a Batman film that's ready to enter production. It does them no good right now to stir that pot and get people thinking about Affleck's exit. Um, and on top of that, if he does end up staying, the public record right now is that he's staying, right? Because Matt Reeves said that that was the plan. And Ben Affleck said last October that he was sticking around. So right now, if he is staying, if we're going to go into the assumption that maybe they may worked out some sort of 11th hour deal and, and we are going to see more Batfleck, that is the current official stance. So why come out and reaffirm it? Why come out and, and call all this attention to Affleck is sticking around when you've already said that he is? So it kind of, it makes no sense in either direction. It makes no sense to say he's staying because they've already indicated that he's staying. And it definitely doesn't make sense to say that he's gone at a time when you want to put your best foot forward and focus on the positive. All right. And, you know, while we're on this subject of DC wanting to keep things positive and wanting to be forward facing instead of navel gazing and, and trying to, you know, dig up old, you know, potentially controversial stories... You know, let's go ahead and talk about the Snyder Cut of Justice League. Because yesterday, May 17th, you know, fans around the world sort of, you know, got on the same page and did this big sort of campaign for it once again. You know, lots of hashtags about release the Snyder Cut. Lots of posts sort of basically begging Warner Brothers to give, you know, to release Snyder's original version of the film. And so suddenly the Snyder Cut is back being discussed. And I feel like I want to go ahead and, and, and address, you know, where, I, where I'm at with all this and what I've heard on it. You know, earlier this week, I was writing about the fact that I really want to see this thing. I do. I am not, but again, not because I think it'll be markedly better than what we got, but just as a curiosity, you know, just as a film buff who loves these characters and loves this mythology and wants to see where Snyder was going. You know, I'm just very curious about it. Um, and specifically because of Superman. You know, because something I've been saying since I saw the film back in, uh, you know, originally on November 16th as part of the uh, first ever watch party that I put together back when I was simply L fanboy and before we launched revengeofthefans.com was that 
with the amount of uh, of blurry, crappy upper lip on Henry Cavill in the theatrical cut, it is incredibly clear that so much of Superman's screen time had to get reworked and it, and came from the reshoots. And the reason that that gets me so curious is like I want to know what Snyder did that got the studio so up in arms. I want to know what it was about the way Superman was portrayed in the Snyder cut that the studio felt the need to go crazy revamping practically like 80% of what we saw in that theatrical cut. So I'm like, I, I just, I need to see what, what, you know, like what it was that was so egregious. What was it that Jeff Johns and John Berg and Diane Nelson and the, you know, the, the people in charge last year, what was it about his Superman that they were so up in arms about that they had to go back and, and, and they would rather have him look like Hugo Weaving. You know, they'd rather have him look like a complete plastic-faced buffoon than risk people seeing what Snyder had in mind. Like, that's crazy to me. You know what I mean? Because even if they wanted to change it, when they saw the final effects on how bad it would look and how jarringly distracting it was going to be, somehow they still liked that better than what Snyder had done. That mystifies me, and I need to know what it was that Snyder did and what it was about the original script written by Terrio and Snyder that got them so just bent out of shape that they would rather have him go out there with a mangled face than risk showing us what Snyder had in mind. I just, I need to know that. But, you know, sadly, I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. You know, if we're going to see it at all, if we're going to see a Snyder cut released ever, A, it'll be for home release. It will not get a theatrical run. And B, it'll be like a long time from now. It'll be like when the when the alternate cuts of Blade Runner would eventually come out. Just to kind of give cinephiles and film buffs, oh, here's an alternate take. Here's, you know, just just for your private collection, something you can check out as like as as more of a curiosity. But we're never gonna get like a full-fledged here it is in theaters. And we're definitely not gonna get it soon, not right now. You know, because I, I spoke to someone over there. And I asked, like, you know, there was all this hubbub today. I think this is yesterday. I'm like, there was all this hubbub today, all these, the, the hashtag release the Snyder Cut, this big monumental sort of campaign, everyone banding together, which, by the way, I think is awesome. I love seeing fans come together and work together to try to get something that they love. So kudos to anyone who participated in that. But... When I asked someone over there, they got back to me just basically saying that, let's see, I, I don't want to mince words here. They said, nope, no Snyder Cut. The Tooth Fairy is more real than that coming out. I'm like, ouch. And then they also continued to say, why would we want to put out another version of a total failure? Future is focus. So what's interesting about that is they really do view Justice League internally as a failure. They look at this movie as, you know, and, and not even necessarily a creative failure, not necessarily because the critics were so mixed on it, giving it the 40%, you know, not, not even necessarily for what it ended up being. And because they thought that the theatrical cut, the theatrical cut was maybe better or worse than the Snyder cut. They just view the entire Justice League thing as a failure, mainly because of what I spoke about last week. It was a failure in terms of planning and execution. 
they know that this film should have been huge. It should have done Avengers style numbers. It should have done, you know, it should have been just one of those great, huge event films. And ultimately, we know it wasn't. And they view that entire experience as a failure. And that's why they really just want to focus on the future. That's why whether it's the Snyder Cut or the theatrical cut, they want to get Justice League firmly in the rearview mirror because they. My, my source also went on to say that right now, internally, the focus is Shazam, Wonder Woman 2, and Aquaman. That trifecta for them is where all of their focus is right now. Making sure that these next three DC movies are as great as they can possibly be, that they get the brand back up and rehabilitated and get people excited again, the way that Wonder Woman did last year when it came out in June and suddenly no one cared about BVS or Suicide Squad 2. I mean, Suicide Squad, because everyone was talking about how amazing Wonder Woman was. You know, they, they kind of want to do that again. They want to be like, all right, let's go ahead and just sort of, let's put distance between us and Justice League. We totally dropped the ball there. There are new people calling the shots. There's, it's a new era. It's a new regime. We're turning a page. Our entire focus is on Aquaman, Shazam, and Wonder Woman 2. So that's why, like, as an extension of what I was saying last week, as an extension of what I opened today's show discussing, Walter Hamada and the new people calling the shots at DC Entertainment only have one goal in mind, one perspective in mind, and that is the future releasing Justice League again right now with with the Snyder cut a you know it would cost them some money to to you know fully complete it which they don't want to do because they already feel like they took a bath on Justice League and B, it would just muddy the waters. It would once again shine a spotlight on what happened last year. It would create more negative headlines about, oh, look what they did to Snyder's movie. Wow, we didn't really change. It would just suddenly be another huge eyesore, another huge distraction. So if you're someone who wants that, listen, I'm here with you. I want to see it too. I'm genuinely curious. I, if it eventually comes out, I will order it on day one. But in all honesty, they, 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 they don't have anything to gain. Nobody wins anything right now by releasing the Snyder Cut, aside from the, the, the diehard, hardcore Zack Snyder fans who are dying for it. They're the only ones who would benefit. But the overall DC Entertainment brand and everything that they're trying to put their focus on moving forward will suffer. Because right now, their only goal, as I've said, and this is going to be the final time I say it, is to focus on the DC Universe streaming service, to focus on getting people excited for Aquaman, Wonder Woman 2, Shazam, getting people excited for the Superman sequel, and that that is it. That is where their focus is, and I cannot say I disagree with that. And the last thing I'm going to discuss with regard to DC before changing gears and talking some Star Wars, some Deadpool 2, and some more Infinity War is uh, I, I think what they're doing with their TV shows is is kind of brilliant. Because what, what seems to be going on, you know, for those unaware, yesterday Stephen Amell showed up to the CW upfronts and announced that Batwoman was going to factor in to the crossover event this December and that they were going to basically be introducing, you know, Bat family characters. You know, with Batwoman and Gotham, they're now going to establish that as, as something they could mine, something they could build from within the CW's little Arrowverse, as we call it. And what I think is interesting is when you think about that, 
And when you think about the fact that we've just discovered that over on the DC Universe streaming service, that there, there's going to be synergy there as well with Cyborg appearing in both Titans and the Doom Patrol. Um, you know, it's interesting. It looks like they're setting up multiple shared universes, which I think is kind of smart. It's like these little domed universes that are all self-contained within their networks. And I think that makes a heck of a lot more sense than what Marvel initially promised and then really kind of realized that they couldn't live up to. Remember, Marvel promised us that the movies were all interconnected as well as the TV series and that shows like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Daredevil and, you know, Jessica Jones and Luke Cage and the Defenders, that it was all part of the same tapestry. But then little by little, we've been seeing how hard it has been for them to actually make that a reality to the point where a lot of times the stuff that's happening on the small screen seems to have little to no impact on what's happening on the big screen and vice versa. So Marvel made us that promise and utterly failed at it. Meanwhile, DC, I think what they're doing makes a lot more sense because if it looks like the CW will house its own little shared DC universe. The DC streaming service will house its own little shared TV DC universe. And then the movies are obviously going to you know, be, be in their own little shared space that doesn't cross over into what's happening in either one of those TV spheres. I think that's a lot more manageable because it's much easier to basically get all of the creative teams on the same page when you're only dealing with a handful of TV shows than trying to get all, you know, 10 or 12 DC shows under the same, you know, into the same shared space, as well as trying to have some synergy with the movies. It's just, you know, it's, it's a very incongruous thing to do. And while I know DC was criticized initially for, for not trying to have the TV shows at all interact with the movies, I think it's, I think it's the smarter way to go. And knowing that they're going to bring Batwoman and Gotham into the Arrowverse, I think that's very exciting because, you know, we already know that DC Entertainment has allowed for Gotham to bring on Batman next season as that, se as that series is going to come to a conclusion. So clearly they're no longer against having a TV version of Batman. And I kind of feel like having Batwoman is a step in that direction. You know, because they, you know, they've referenced Gotham before and there have been a little bit like Easter eggs on Arrow and whatnot, even on uh, Supergirl, where where Tyler Hoechlin, Superman, has apparently referenced working with someone over in Gotham. You know, they, they've dropped some hints. And I feel like if Batwoman is a huge you know success for this crossover event and fans are really dying to see more of what's going on in Gotham. Maybe we will get a Batman series. You know, who knows? But I, I, I'm excited about that announcement. And I'm excited to see DC's approach on the small screen coming more into focus. Where they're totally cool having each network sort of house its own little mini universe. And I think, you know, that that is a recipe for success in an area where Marvel completely botched on the delivery. You know, and I don't know if, if I'm going to get a lot of blowback on that. Uh, but I know that, you know, with regard to Marvel's promises not being kept, you know, I know that John, a.k.a. the nice Revenger, a.k.a. the co-founder of RevengeOfTheFans.com, has been banging the drum for a while that this whole connectivity between Marvel's TV shows and movies is questionable at best. So I know he'll agree with me. 
But, you know, if anyone out there is listening to this and think that there really is great cohesion between the Marvel shows and the movies, please let me know why I'm wrong. Let me know, you know, maybe there's something I'm missing here. But it just seems like, you know, beyond Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. when it began and beyond Daredevil when that began, there's been very little reason to think that this is all one shared universe. Um so, yes. So with that in mind, let's talk a little Star Wars because there's been uh, just a me. Solo is right on the horizon. And yeah, I know my feelings for that movie have been somewhat harsh. And, you know, I went from Nolo to Molo, which is maybe. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't I still don't sense myself being a YOLO, a.k.a. yes to Solo. Um, but, you know, I've made a sort of peace with the whole thing. Because for me now, you know, my expectations, because I'm going to go see it, you know, there, there's no way I'm going to miss this because it's, you know, it's Star Wars and it's got, you know, it's, it's about Han Solo, a character I love and all that stuff. So I'm definitely going to see it. But in terms of my expectations, you know, I'm really just going to go into it expecting bubblegum, expecting just like, just give me a two hour thrill ride, put me out in that galaxy far, far away for a couple hours with all the groovy, v you know, the, the spaceships and the funky characters and the costumes and, you know, give me little Easter eggs for things that connect to the other movies that I love so much. And that's fine. You know, I'm just, I'm not going to go into it expecting something that's going to really, you know, drive me insane with excitement. I don't think I'm going to come out of solo doing backflips, but I'm probably going to walk out of it thinking, oh, you know, that that was a nice time. That was a pleasant ride through some familiar territory. And sometimes that's okay. Because, you know, from what I'm hearing, you know, one of my chief complaints about the film will stand. A friend of mine who's also a reporter who saw it at a press screening, you know, came to me. And this is someone who was a huge ardent supporter of the solo movie and who kept telling me that I was being too hard on it, who, you know, they, they thought I was just be like, you know, judging a book on its cover and making all kinds of assumptions. Well, this person has now seen it and they told me basically, yeah, you know, it's a nice time. I enjoyed it. It's a good, fun couple hours, but it doesn't really address your central you know, complaint, which is that this story didn't need to be told. You know, and I know that that's a weird stance for me to take. Some of you may roll your eyes at that. Does it, why, why would a movie have to justify its, its existence? But you know, for me with Solo, it's always just been a question of, do I really need to see this? You know, there, there were really things about Han Solo's past that to me, you know, I, I already know more or less how he wins the Millennium Falcon. I know about the Kessel Run. I liked having all that sort of stuff as a mystery in my mind that I could connect the dots and, and, and kind of imagine my own backstory. I don't need you to go back and spell out every bit of minutia about every original trilogy character's backstory. Not that they're going to do that, but, you know, it just it felt like they're over explaining it. And they're robbing some of the mystique. You know, I, I love the dynamic between Han and Lando in Empire Strikes Back. I love it. You can't really tell if they're friends or enemies. And that's what makes what happens in Empire Strikes Back. And it kind of leads into Return of the Jedi. So sort of surprising because we know so little about them that it kind of keeps you on the edge of your seat. Having a movie now that's going to spell out their relationship I'm just like, I don't need to see that. And now you're kind of robbing the original film of some of what made it special. Um, but, you know, uh, like I said, my friend came to me and said that the movie really doesn't 
aside from maybe one scene that is kind of like, oh, I didn't see that coming. It really is just kind of like a by the numbers connecting of the dots, giving you visuals to things that you are already kind of knew about from the solo lore. And yet really what I want, and I was talking about this with the Twitter user and listener Mauricio Faundes, you know, I really want new. I want, you know, ever since they announced these Star Wars stories and that, that, that you know, aside from episodes seven, eight, and nine, we were going to get standalone stories that took us to other corners of the Star Wars universe. You know, as soon as they announced that, I was thinking, great, there's so much territory to cover. There's so many different, you know, corners of this galaxy to explore. Let's meet new characters, new aliens. Let's see new bits of Jedi history with characters we've never heard of. Let's really, you know, George Lucas gave us this amazing sandbox to play in. He gave us basically a limitless universe with, you know, certain ground rules within it that from those ground rules, you could tell all kinds of amazing tales. You could tell movies that are like samurai movies, movies that are like westerns. You could have movies that are heist capers like this one's going to be. You could have a love story. You could have a spiritual quest. You could have all kinds of unbelievable storytelling. And yet, you know, so far it's been Rogue One and it's been Solo and, you know... I just, I want new things. That's really, at the end of the day, what I want. But with that in mind, you know, I, I, I will I will check out Solo. The reviews are somewhat tepid. I don't know if you guys have noticed. I tweeted about this yesterday. You know, on Rotten Tomatoes with a whole bunch of reviews, and I think there are around 130 reviews counted so far, it's only sitting at like a 72%. So it's positive, but, you know... Not nearly as overwhelmingly positive as The Force Awakens or The Last Jedi or Rogue One. So, you know, it, it, it seems like this is going to be the first one that people are sort of like, yeah, it's it's, it's pretty good. You know, I, 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 I gently recommend it to you, but people are, don't seem to be coming out of this one completely euphoric and going, oh my God, they did it. They pulled it off. This is a phenomenal, incredible Han Solo story. That does not seem to be happening. But you know why I'm ultimately sort of, you know, ending up positive on Solo and why I am going to end up seeing it on opening weekend and why in general I'm not like as staunchly against it as I might have been last year? It's because of Lawrence Kasdan. You know, reading comments from Lawrence, or, or I should say Mr. Kasdan, since I don't know him personally, but hearing comments from, from Mr. Kasdan about how much he loves this character and what an absolute thrill it was for him to be able to uh, collaborate with his son Jonathan on this script, that's got me excited. Because you know what it is? You know, Kasdan gave me Empire Strikes Back. Kasdan gave me The Force Awakens. He gave me, you know, The Raiders of the Lost Ark. He gave me all of these beautiful gems over the years, my favorite Star Wars movies and Indiana freaking Jones. And if he believes in this movie, if he loves this character this much, and if this is the movie that really got him excited to stay working within the Star Wars universe, then I you know, I want to see what it is about this that made Mr. Kasdan so happy and so excited. And, you know, so th that's mainly it. You know, it it's less about the movie. It's more about checking out what it was that sparked Mr. Kasdan's imagination. And finally, and not finally, we just we were just in this universe in December. But, you know, just getting a couple of bonus hours 
in the Star Wars galaxy. That sort of stuff to me is makes it sort of worth it. And that's why ultimately, you know, I'm generally positive on Solo, uh, even, even if tepidly so. Whereas last year, I was totally staunchly cynical and, and against this movie happening. Especially with all the behind-the-scenes upheaval and everything that happened with Lord and Miller and Howard. You know, if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have been like, this is the first Star Wars movie I have outward contempt towards. And I have zero hype towards. Well, you know, the arc of this story has been here we are a week later. And I'm looking forward to seeing it just, you know, uh, with very guarded you know, uh, expectations. Um so now speaking of seeing movies and expectations and all that sort of good stuff, this week I had a chance to see Deadpool 2. I went to see uh, at a, a press screening at the, uh, the Fox building in Midtown Manhattan. I was able to see it with Brett Miro, my co-host from the Revengers podcast, as well as RTF contributor and longtime supporter of this here show and of Revenge of the Fans, Aaron Verola. So that was kind of a special treat to get to see this movie with the two of them. Um, and you know, I loved the fuck out of it. I wrote a review and I'm not, I'm not going to get into spoilers right here with you since this is opening weekend. I'll save spoilers for, for probably next week when I, when I link up with my Revengers cohorts. But for right now, you know, my non-spoiler thoughts were Deadpool 2 was tremendously entertaining and satisfying. A blast of two hours at the theater where I was laughing so much that my sides hurt a couple times. I was cheering along with the characters. I was covering my mouth in shock at some of the things that they got away with. And in general, you know, to me, it's one of those sequels that takes what worked and just gives us more of it with a little more. It goes a little bigger and a little bolder with it, but it really is just sort of more of the same. And the funny thing is, like, you know, when people talk about, oh, it's just more of the same, like, yeah, that can be a critique, but if the same was awesome, then give me more of the same. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I always think about, like, I, I had this exchange with, uh, with Jeremy Scully, my old buddy. We were talking about the Arkham video games that Rocksteady has made based on Batman, right? And something happened where, like, he was complaining about, like, oh, I don't want to get Arkham Knight because I hear it's more of the same. But I'm like, but the same is awesome. You know what I mean? Like, if you've enjoyed Arkham City, if you, if you enjoyed the Arkham Asylum games, if you enjoyed Batman Origins, you know, if you like that play style and you like being in that world, fighting those villains and, and doing the things that you know, the conventions of that series, what's the harm in getting a few more hours with new places to explore and new villains to beat up? You know, I'm a firm believer that as long as the thing that you are repeating was awesome, that's all right. It, it, it only becomes an issue is if what you're doing is like a flat out retread. If what you're doing is like The Hangover 2. Remember The Hangover 2 was basically the same premise as the first one, but in Thailand, and they didn't really add anything new, and it really followed like the same arc. You know, as long as you don't do that, and you're just, you know, you're taking the things that worked and just giving me much more of them, I'm not going to fault you for that. You know, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel sometimes. Sometimes it's okay to just take what worked and give us more of it. And I do feel that Deadpool 2 was that. But um, but Aaron brought up something interesting. And he, you know, he, he feels like 
I should talk about this movie through the filter of my angry letter to Ryan <laughs> Ryan Reynolds that I wrote a couple of years ago. Um, for those not dialed in, when I used to write for Latino Review, uh, I used to do this thing where I would write like open letters that I would publish on the site. You know, I, I had uh, Dear Zack Snyder, I had Dear Ben Affleck, I had Dear Ryan Reynolds. Uh, I actually started Revenge of the Fans with one just called Dear Fandom. So, you know, I, I wrote this letter to Ryan Reynolds right around the time that Tim Miller walked off the project where it seemed like he was more or less shown the door and forced out by Ryan Reynolds. And at the time, my big argument was, you know, Ryan, this was your first big hit. Deadpool, you know, was your first, despite being in the industry and making movies for close to 20 years, Deadpool was the first real, true, unmitigated blockbuster smash you've ever been a part of. And Tim Miller was a huge part of that. Remember, it was his leaked test footage that got the studio to go, you know what, let's give this a chance. And this is after Reynolds had tried to get the movie made and they ultimately slammed the door in his face. When Miller's test footage hit the web, all of a sudden this groundswell came up and this movie was born. You know, and the movie had a very, you know, the Miller has a great visual style. And he was able to take Ryan Reynolds' ideas and really bring them to life. You know, the what him and Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick had come up with, Tim Miller was able to bring to beautiful life in Deadpool. And I was, you know, I wrote the letter basically telling Ryan, like, don't bite the hand that feeds, don't mess with a winning formula, because Miller just helped you produce arguably your greatest success in your entire career. And for you to show him the door is a little ridiculous. You know, you don't mess with a good thing. Um, so with that in mind, you know, now that I've seen Deadpool 2, how do I feel about my old remarks, about my old stance on this matter? Um, you know, it actually feels like I should eat a little bit of crow because at the end of the letter, I'm like, you know, if, if Deadpool 2 ends up being a mess or if people don't like it or if people reject it, you know, now now everyone's going to know that it was, you know, it was your fault, Ryan. You know, I kind of went at him a little hard. I was a little fired up that day and I made it, you know, I just kind of threw in that little jab of like, you know, if Deadpool 2 sucks, it's going to be on you because you pushed out the guy who helped make the first one as good as it was. Well, clearly, it looks like Reynolds and Wernick and Reese, you know, they really seem to, it seems like they were the nucleus. That as long as they're together, we're going to have some really good Deadpool stuff. And that the director that they hire really is sort of, you know, uh, beside the point. You know, because at the time also when I wrote the letter, I was pointing out that what Reynolds seems to want is merely a director who will take his ideas and adapt them to the screen, who's not going to try to impart their own creative input too much, someone who's going to basically just bring to life what him, Reese, and Wernick come up with. And it looks like David Leitch was up to the task. It looks like David Leitch from, you know, of John Wick fame, who co-directed the first John Wick, uh, it looks like he was really up for it. It looks like, you know, he took their ideas and he also was able to just, you know, take that baton and transpose their ideas onto the big screen almost as well as Tim Miller did. You know, there's some differences. 
you know, Tim Miller clearly comes more from the background of comic books. And like when, you know, like he, he loves the character's comic book history. So when he, uh, the first Deadpool has a more like overtly comic book sensibility to it with the visuals and the, it just, it feels more like a comic book come to life, visually speaking. Whereas Deadpool 2, it's clear that he's bringing more of, that David Leitch is bringing more of his background in action movies. It, it, it's a much better looking action movie with better staged and choreographed and shot action than the first one. But, you know, ultimately both directors were able to take what the creative team wanted of them, bring it to life and put their own sort of unique, you know, add their own unique strength. So in Miller's case, his strength was being able to make it look almost like a Deadpool comic come to life. In David Leitch's thing, he was able to really go for that insane, over-the-top action extravaganza, hard-hitting, you know, lots of blood and, and, and violence and insanity. You know, he was able to bring that from his John Wick background and his background as a stuntman to this. Um, so, you know, now... What's interesting is now the, the pressure will now shift over to Tim Miller to a certain extent because, you know, it's clear that Reynolds knew what he was talking about and whatever creative differences they were having at the time, it looks like, you know, in my, in my guesstimation, in my opinion, his vision for Deadpool 2 looks like it was pretty, it was a pretty damn good one because I really, really enjoyed the movie. Now with Miller off working on a new movie, now, if that movie is for some reason a failure or it's a misfire, we're going to know that Deadpool was really a product of Ryan Reynolds' insane imagination. You know, him and the writer's insane imagination and not necessarily what Tim Miller brought to the table, you know? So, yeah, I, I hate to put it that way, like I'm pitting Miller against Reynolds. But now, you know, Reynolds did what he did. He pushed Miller out, but his movie... It turned out great, and the opening weekend box office results look like look, look like they're going to be stellar, and they're fully moving towards X Force and all that sort of stuff. So now, with that in mind, if Miller's next movie is for some reason a failure and everyone hates it, now we'll kind of know who should have won that argument, you know? Um, and just and just kind of beyond that, on the side, I just find it very interesting. It, it, it can't be coincidental where Miller ended up because if you look at the premise for Deadpool 2, and I, I, I think I've brought this up elsewhere, either on, on the Revengers podcast, I don't think it was here, um, but just to reiterate, the premise for Deadpool 2 is about a cyborg coming to the present from the future to kill a to kill someone before something horrible happens in the future. You know, the, the cyborg comes to kill someone before they go on to do terrible things, which is basically Terminator. And what I find so interesting is what happened. Miller left Deadpool 2, hooked up with James Cameron, and now he's making a Terminator movie. You know, I I I I don't think there's a coincidence there. And that's why if I were to try to read the tea leaves and follow those breadcrumbs, a part of me thinks that the central issue between Miller and Reynolds was that he wanted to go a little more hard hitting. He wanted Deadpool 2 to perhaps 
be a more real like sci-fi driven action you know spectacle with the laughs and the requisite deadpool isms but i have a feeling he wanted to go grander he wanted to go more sci-fi more hard-hitting perhaps slightly more serious rather than just repeat what worked so well in deadpool you know what i mean Whereas Reynolds actually wanted to just go, all right, here's what worked with the first one. Let's just give them more of that. I get the sense Miller wanted to try to maybe cover some new ground and, and maybe tell a story that had a little more meat on its bones. Because, I don't know, the fact that he went from Deadpool 2 to making a Terminator movie, when Deadpool 2 has a very Terminator-ish you know, uh, premise, I don't think that's a coincidence. And I'm honestly sort of surprised that not more people are, are, are hitting on that, you know, on that strange connection there between the, you know, the, the, the Deadpool sequel that he was developing and the film that he's now working on. Um, okay, so I'm going to wrap things up today with a, with a little chat uh, about Avengers Infinity War, believe it or not. I know it's been out three weeks and, you know, I've already sort of said my piece on it elsewhere, but, you know, I did get a chance to have a second viewing, uh, you know, last Saturday. And it completely sort of changed everything for me that I felt about the movie. It's, it's, it's rare that a second viewing is this much better and this more hard, this much more hard hitting. But in all honesty, the second viewing of Infinity War to me was just, uh, it, was a, it was a total game changer because this time I was able to see some of the deeper elements to the story. This time at the end, instead of tuning out like a cynical asshole, I actually leaned in and, and, and one of the things that I guess right off the bat I should say was different is you know the, the big finale, right? The big thing with everyone dying and all the people turning into powder. Um, you know, I, I actually want to thank people like Brent Clark, who's listening to this, I assume. And, and others who pointed out that, like, yes, remember, we know that characters like Spider-Man and Black Panther are going to be getting sequels and that there's no way that the bulk of these deaths are going to stick. We know that. But it is your prerogative, Mario, as an audience member, to get over yourself and put yourself in the reality of the movie itself. Put yourself in the shoes of the characters around them. Steve doesn't know that his best friend is going to return. All he knows is that Bucky, who he has spent all of this time trying to reconnect with and trying to help redeem and, and all this sort of stuff, you know, he just died. You know, and Tony Stark, with all of his you know, PTSD he's been dealing with since the first Avengers that we saw in Iron Man 3 and all of his internal ethical wars with himself and everything that he tried to do to mentor Peter to not make the mistakes he made and try to keep Peter safe as an almost father-like figure, Peter just died in his arms. You know, and it's like watching the movie being more like putting myself in the shoes of the people in the story was a total, you know, it, it totally flipped the whole thing on its head for me. And of course, I should have been doing that from the beginning, but for some reason, I, I had a bug up my ass the first night I saw it. The first night I saw it, as soon as I started seeing Black Panther, as soon as Black Panther went, I went, oh, this is bullshit. And I basically tuned out for the remainder of that finale because I'm like, none of this really matters. So why am I going to get sad for a bunch of deaths that are going to get undone next year? Oh, damn it. You know, I was very much like, it just, I was over it pretty quickly. Whereas this time, 
actually putting myself in the shoes of those in this film. It really, you know, I, I had the waterworks. I had a lump in my throat. I, 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 when the credits started to roll, I felt distraught and worried. And, you know, it was, it was, it was just a much more gratifying experience. Um, but there's also, you know, I, I want to bring up something else I'm not seeing discussed very often. And for those of you who like to go deeper on these movies, uh, it's rare that I, I, I get to see th these, this kind of depth in a Marvel film. But I actually picked up on some stuff this time that I'd like to share with you. I'm like, I, I don't want to rush any decisions here about what I think this means. But it's interesting to me what the writers, what, what McFeely and Marcus have to say about the concept of sacrifice. Because <clears throat> if you pay attention throughout the film, the, the good guys in the story all like pump the brakes on sacrificing things. And, you know, and this, the, you, know uh, you have Scarlet Witch who didn't want to kill Vision because she loved him. Uh, you had Steve Rogers sort of echo that by saying, you know, we, we, we don't trade lives. Uh, there was also a thing even on that on that on the, the the Peter Dinklage stuff on whatever that planet is called where they make the weapons you know at that station at that the Dead Star, you know he mentions and this and this went over my head last time that there were 300, 300 dwarves at that station, and he thought that Thanos would spare their lives if he made the gauntlet for him, and then ultimately you know they all died. Um, and I think there's another example. Of right now, I'm doing this all off the top of my head, but th there are several examples throughout the film of the heroes failing to make a sacrifice, and look what happened to them. They all lost. They were only thinking about the small picture, and they lost. Thanos, on the other hand, the you know the actual villain of the piece, was the only one with the audacity to say, fuck the small picture, I'm looking at the bigger picture. And he sacrificed everything. Even you know, Gamora, who's his daughter, and when, I mean, that scene is so heart-wrenching because he does love her. And he does not want to do this. And she's fighting and screaming and sobbing and, and it's, it's tearing him apart to do what he's doing to Gamora. But all he can think about is his greater purpose, is the bigger picture. That getting the gauntlet and and doing away with half the universe's population in a completely you know dispassionate way where people just die and it's not like he's picking who gets to live or die it's just half the people go and half the people don't to me like I think it's interesting what the script tries to say about that you know that it's the one it, it it's the one being in this entire film that is willing to sacrifice the immediate. For the sake of the of, of of the bigger scope of things, of the bigger picture, that he's the one who actually wins. So what is it? You know, I, I like I said, I don't want to jump to conclusions as to what that means, but it is like surprisingly sort of like a cynical outlook. Like I don't know what McFeely and Marcus are trying to say in their script, but I just think it's very notable that the good guys all you know do not make the sacrifices, and they ultimately pay the ultimate price whether or not it's them dying or them losing someone who matters to them. And Thanos, who is the one with the balls to actually go and say, I, I, you know, it doesn't matter how much I feel about something or someone, I have to let it die in order for the greater good. I think that's very interesting. 
I think that's very provocative. And I wonder what they're trying to say. I wonder if there's a message in there about how we need to start thinking about the big picture because if all we ever worry about is the small picture, we're on a long road to ruin here. You know, and if you think about it, you know, it fits. It fits with certain things if you want to go allegorical with the way that we treat this planet, with the way we pollute, with the way we're all so like jingoistic and patriotic and all I care about are, are, are the people who live on, in my city or in my state or in my country and the outsiders are the evil fucking outsiders and you know this whole idea of like i only care about what's immediately in front of me and i don't give a damn about what else is going on in the world about the bigger picture you know i find that sort of stuff provocative and interesting and just very thought-provoking and I, I i'm curious to see how that all plays out in avengers 4 something else that i picked up on too a a, a subtlety and i want to bring this up because you know, there's a Twitter user out there, uh, Bosco. I mean, I still call him Bob Dole, but you know, he, he brought up some stuff that he felt was like uh, like a plot hole. And I actually, you know, this time I watched the movie or the second time, fully like paying attention to this. When he punches Steve Rogers' head, when Thanos arrives on Earth and he punches Steve Rogers' head. You know, people are saying he should have killed him. You know, what I mean, you know, Steve Rogers is not a demigod. He's not. He's not some super huge, you know, indestructible thing. He's just a super soldier. If Thanos, with all that might, punches him with all of his strength, he's gonna cave Steve's skull in. And people thought thought of that as a sort of plot hole. But what I realized is, if you pay attention, when he arrives on Earth, he purposely doesn't kill anybody. He could have killed everyone in his path. Even like when War Machine's flying at him, what does he do? He just lightly crushes the armor and incapacitates him. Everyone he just incapacitates. And that leads me to believe that Steve Rogers, he pulls that punch to a degree, as brutal as it looks, I think he actually pulls that punch. And why would he do that? Because he wants the gauntlet to decide who wins or dies. That's huge. That says a lot about him. That he's really, in this version of Thanos that we got in this movie, is not really at his core a villain. Because if he was a villain, when all those guys are coming at him as he's trying to get to Vision, it could have just been death, 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 death. Because, you know, he has the five gems in the gauntlet so far. He could kill all those people if he wants. But he, they, 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 they go through great effort to show that he's merely just trying to incapacitate them and slow them down. Just like he, he puts Bruce Banner in the Hulkbuster armor into that rock. Like everyone, he literally pulls his punches on everyone because he wants the dispassionate finger snap to be the ultimate decider of who stays and who goes. He himself does not want blood on his hands. He's not here to mass murder. He's here to allow fate to decide who stays and who doesn't. I found that to be pretty damn impressive and pretty damn, you know, if I was already kind of in the camp of hashtag Thanos was right, uh, watching this movie only a second time only solidified that. The fact that he didn't kill these motherfuckers, that's a big deal. Um, and by the way, I also just got a kick out of the fact, this is just nowhere near as profound, uh, but I also just got a kick out of the fact that Rocket, because you know what, it didn't, lay, it didn't really dawn on me until yesterday. I know sometimes I have a delayed reaction on things. It really, um, 
I, I got a kick out of the fact that Rocket, who doesn't put up with anything from anyone, just repeatedly allowed Thor to call him Rabbit in one of the great, you know, uh, running gags in the movie. And I realize it's because even Rocket Raccoon has respect for the God of Thunder. You know, I think that's interesting because all throughout the two, the, the, the first two Guardians movies and even in this movie, you know, he's a no nonsense. He's not going to put up with you sort of character. But meanwhile, he never corrects Thor about the rabbit thing. Not once. I think he calls him rabbit like three or four times and Rocket just turns the other cheek because at the end of the day, this is fucking Thor. And I, th I just think that's hilarious and subtle. And yeah, there's just, there's a lot of little nuggets in the movie that totally flew over my head the first time I saw it. So I'm really glad I did. And if somehow you haven't seen Avengers Infinity War uh, a second time, uh, I would recommend go for it because th there's a lot there. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot to smile about. There's a lot to think about in terms of like, wow, there's some pretty dark subject matter some thematic elements in this that are going to, you know, uh, to, you know, knock you for a loop if you really sit and think about them. So, um, all right, folks, I think that's it for this episode of the El Fanboy Podcast. I got another review on Apple Podcasts, but they didn't write a review, but they just gave me another five stars. So thanks to whoever that person was. If you're listening to this and you enjoy the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Uh, Leah, last week we cracked. You know, I cracked the top three fanboy podcasts in all of Apple, so that's pretty fucking huge. So thanks to everyone who's been downloading and telling their friends and sharing the good word about El Fanboy and about RevengeOfTheFans.com. Uh, keep your eyes on the site for all the latest news, mochinche, rumors, and reviews from all your latest and favorite geek things. We got some exciting news on the horizon, too, about another podcast possibly joining the Revenge of the Fans Network. And uh, that's it. Have a wonderful weekend. Be kind. Life is chaos. And until next week, adios.